At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. We think that we're going to be here forever. And it's like, no, dude, like the earth is going to be here forever. You know, humans haven't been here that long in, in relation, in respect to the, the, the length of, of time that this blue ball has been floating around in, in, in space. So if there's a nuclear freaking fallout, roaches will be walking around and we'll all be dead. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we have 10-year NFL veteran Dante Stallworth, someone who also, by the way, worked at the Huffington Post after he retired to cover national security politics. This guy is one of the sharpest knives in the box, and we're going to talk to Dante Stallworth about all manner of things that are very far away from the world of football. It's going to be fascinating. Also, I've got some choice words about LeBron James and the racist attack on his home. Also, I got a Kaepernick watch this week about the wildest excuse yet for why Colin Kaepernick is not employed. You got to hear this one to believe it. And then we've got the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Award. I got a special letter that I want to read from an Edge of Sports listener. And hey, we always have some surprises as well. So please keep on listening. But first, Dante Stallworth. So Dante Stallworth, 10 years in the NFL to covering national security issues at the Huffington Post. I can't quite think of another football journey like that. Before we get into some politics, can you just tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, so I've I've grown up loving learning about history. Uh, even as a child, um, you know, I, I of course I watched cartoons, but I spent a lot of time like learning about the Roman Empire and Greek mythology, like I was weird, man. I was into that and and still am. But as a child, um, initially, I just became, uh, you know, aware of the world, aware that the world was bigger than Sacramento, California. And uh, so I wanted to learn more and more about it. And my dad would, uh, who was in the army and would talk to me about being in a Korea and being in Germany. And so 
uh, I guess just kind of over the years, I just grew up, I already had a natural love for learning about history and uh, American history, world history, learning about um, just how the world worked and why it worked that way. Uh, it just spurned my curiosity uh, the older I got, and it just came to a point to where I'm, where I'm kind of at now where I am. You went to a big-time football school in the Southeastern Conference, Tennessee, and we all know these kinds of schools can be football factories where the opening for a student-athlete to actually explore their interests can be very circumscribed or limited. What was it like for you at Tennessee? Were you able to take classes that allowed you to develop this knowledge, or was that more something you had to read on your own time? You know what? So there was this period where when I got to college, man, it was it was all about football um, and it was all about Tennessee and, and college football. I I watched one Super Bowl, uh, which was the only NFL game I had watched my whole uh, three and a half years in college. So I now I didn't watch one uh, NFL game. I was so immersed in watching uh, college football and knowing everything about college football. And so that was literally the, the only thing on my mind. I, I kind of stopped, uh, you know, searching and trying to learn more about uh, the Roman culture and Greek mythology. I stopped learning about those things and was more focused on my craft of being, an, uh, being a co- collegiate student athlete, um, but also perfecting my craft in football. And so, I mean, it, it really took until I got to the NFL and had a bunch of free time in my hands like I hadn't when I was in school and to where that childhood, those childhood um, memories and everything started to come back to me. And then so from there, I started to pursue it a little more, little by little. I would say probably like in 2005, 2006, seven area, those, those few years was when I really started to like pay more and more attention to it. So I guess I would say it was because I had, uh, I don't want to say I perfected my craft in the NFL, but I pretty much knew how to read defenses. I knew, I pretty much knew everything I needed to know. Um, so I wasn't uh, spending that much time as I was in my early career um, trying to learn how to run routes versus defenses and things of that mm-hmm. nature. So, you know, I, yeah, time went on and I, and I began to think about it more. And, um, and, you know, it just, again, it just kind of culminated to where we are today and, you know, you talk about today's times, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting time to, to, uh, you know, be paying attention to politics. I know a lot more people are. It, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the Roman empire because one of the most famous sports politics quotes of the last year was Greg Popovich comparing the Trump administration to the Roman empire. <laughs> and he just said straight up, we're like Rome. Uh, do you see similarities uh, between what we know about Rome and the fall of the Roman Empire and what we're seeing in the United States today? To me, I think the biggest arrogance of human beings and Americans especially is that we we feel like like there's nothing that we can't do. We automatically assume that human beings are going to be here for another 100, 200 years. And, and we've, we've come to the brink of nuclear extinction multiple times and not just because you know uh russia and america were beefing this this comes from um technological failure mm-hmm. uh from safeguards that were when um one nuclear weapon or a couple of nuclear weapons landed in uh north carolina and they didn't go off because the last safeguard didn't fail out of the out of the four that were in succession so we've 
we've put ourselves in a position to where we can destroy the world many times over and we don't take this threat seriously. Like to me, I mean, again, this is obviously my own opinion, but I think nuclear weapons is the biggest, the, 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 that and climate change, I, I believe, but you know, there's a lot of conversation going around that, but we don't pay enough attention to it. So the arrogance that we have, we think that, we're going to be here forever. And it's like, no, dude, like the earth is going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. You know, humans haven't been here that long in, in relation, in respect to the, the, the length of, of time that this blue ball has been floating around in, in, in space. So if there's a nuclear freaking fallout, roaches will be walking around and we'll all be dead. So we need to understand that. And we need to take serious, uh, you know, in respect to nuclear weapons. And I, and I go there because I start thinking about this whole North Korea thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I know I'm moving different subjects, but that's no, okay. Please, <laughs> you know I, I I get really nervous when um, you know I hear uh, our president saying things to like after North Korea lets off another missile, and he's like saying you know China's doing their best. Um, you know I feel bad for them, but they're trying hard. What do you mean, dude? They're not shooting missiles uh, or testing missiles to see if they can reach China. W- what does China have? To do? Yes, they're allies, but He's taking the responsibility off himself, which could be a which could be his diplomacy tactic, but who knows? But at the end of the day, when you when you go that brinksmanship route, then you're you're essentially pressing, a, a, let's be honest, a madman into a corner, a paranoid madman into a corner, by escalating rhetoric and sending the uh, you know the striker fleet out there. And what is what is North Korea going to do, man? I mean, we're not going to invade North Korea because if it comes down to it, um, we don't know what this dude's going to do. And there's 10 million humans in Seoul, in the city of Seoul, which is right on the border of North Korea alone. So one of the secretary, former secretary of defense, uh, William Perry, said he said his biggest thing is 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 being concerned about blundering into a war with North Korea, not if North Korea is going to strike first or not, if we're going to go on preemptive preemptive. Uh, invasion because it's just it's not going to work. We've done it a number of times and it doesn't work. But even if it, but but my my point is that we could blunder into a war, and if we blunder into a war with North Korea, that is that is the ultimate uh, in my mind that that is the ultimate sadness that our arrogance gets in the way, and where we we can't work things out and talk things out with people anymore. Like it's a bad thing to do. Like okay, we're America, we're the baddest mother on the planet, right? Well, let's use our diplomacy instead of using our aggressive weaponry or, or like, you know what I mean? Like, let's use aggressive diplomacy. Let's go that route because life depends on it. And people want to, you know, be seen as tough and tough on crime and tough on terrorism. But we're pushing ourselves so far to a point, Damn. man, that, that, that it's going to be irreversible. And the chain of events of just are going to happen and whatever they, whatever they may be, that's what it's going to be. And once that war machine gets going... No one is able to stop it. It's happened in World War One, where they said they called that the the war to end all wars. And less than you know, a couple of decades later, or a few decades later, it, it World War Two. The war. It was the war to start the next war. Yeah. Let me ask you. You're making some some really interesting points. Um, can, you know, the NFL is the most powerful cultural product that we have in the United States. Nothing is more watched. Nothing is more consumed. And frankly, nothing is close. Um, can you draw a line of connection between the what you have what we have to call the toxic masculinity you know that you just described you know tough on crime real men aren't diplomats and all this stuff which could cause us 
to blunder into the kind of war you're talking about. Can you draw a line between that and some of the values that are taught by professional football? When I speak to the rookies on NFL teams throughout the course of the league, um, usually in the offseason, you know, I tell them one of the things that is not talked about enough is like mental health and, and mental stability. And um, as a rookie, you know, it's it's if you had nothing else to worry about than just football, that is 10 times more than enough because it's so difficult as a young man going from college to the NFL. And I know people are going to say, oh, you're making millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And other people, um, you know, the average citizen will never see that in their lifetime, but which is obviously true, but that this is not a black and white issue. The issue is that these young men are moving into a new system uh, from essentially a system of exploitation in college to a system of uh, where, where you're able to make more money than, you know, your parents probably made. And now you are in a position to uh, become your own business, so to speak. You are your own brand, your own business. And we have this perception in football, uh, especially in college and the NFL, but just football in general, is to never show um, physical weakness and never show mental weakness. When that same, when those same principles are naturally carried in, into, uh, into real life, then that's when, that's when you can you know, be affected by it. So I just try to tell them, like, wipe the stigma off of uh, feeling or like feeling like you're crazy or insane or something's wrong with you. If you need to speak to somebody, I said, everybody speaks to somebody you may have, you may speak to your girlfriend um, or your significant other. You may speak to your brother, but we all talk to people. You know what I'm saying? So we are naturally uh, social creatures. That's what human beings are. So we need to be able to speak to somebody. And I try to tell them, don't allow that stigma of feeling like you need to speak to someone professionally that you have an issue because at the end of the day, we've all got issues, every mm-hmm. single one of us. So Dante, let's take this back to international politics for a second because I, I want to talk to you about what we just saw with Trump's international trip and the U.S. on the global stage. I mean, what did we see? We saw Trump effectively pull out of NATO, push people around on stage. Um, the Middle East policy. Literally. <laughs> yeah, literally push people out of the way on stage. You see a, a Middle East policy, which is just bizarre. And what did his foreign trip tell you, though, about U.S. power in the age of Trump? Because there's a lot of talk about the U.S. actually surrendering global leadership right, right now. What, right. What, what, what are you seeing? You know, the interesting thing about it is that there's, a, there's always been this sentiment uh, in this country, as long as we've been uh, a, a unified nation, so to speak, um, there's always been the sentiment of uh, America first policy. And um, the thing that I, when I when I talk about this, and, and usually on Twitter, but you know, I say America first is historically there's precedent. It's it's historically rooted in in racism and in xenophobia. Um, so that's not again, and that's not to label all Trump supporters um, xenophobes or racists, because you can't label one group of people. And we also know, true, that that uh, globalists have often operated on very racial assumptions, like this idea that right. the U.S. should dominate the global south. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So the the fact that he decided to go to Saudi Arabia of all places first, that to me set the tone. Um, you know, the same Saudi Arabia that, you know, less than 15 months prior, 
um, during the campaign, I call it campaign Donald, um, he talked a lot about Saudi Arabia, but not in glowing terms. He talked about them and said that they were responsible for 9-11, not the Iraqis. He was, he was uh, speaking, saying, why are we going into Iraq? Um, and we should be, uh, you know, looking at Saudi Arabia. And he talked about this a lot in the, in, the, uh, in the campaign election. And then he makes his first trip to Saudi Arabia. Well, in the meantime, uh, prior to that, the Saudi Arabians uh, had funded this trip, this lobbying uh, against uh, this, this uh, law called JASTA, which essentially was a law that, that gave uh, the victims of 9-11, uh, their family members, the ability to sue um, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia for their alleged roles in, in the attacks of 9-11. And so they lobbied against this. They sent U.S. military veterans, right? They sent our veterans um, to lobby against this. And some of the veterans said they knew what they were doing, and some of them said they didn't. Um, but the point is that there was this deception. Um, at, the, at the very least, there was, there was a, a role of, if maybe not deception, uh, you know, uh, dishonesty or, or, or omitting this information, the Saudis, of funding this, this trip they sent them to the Donald Trump uh, Hotel in D.C. Um, they ended up spending in the four or five month period from the time he was elected to uh, maybe a month or so after he was elected, sometime in February of this year. Uh, they spent 270 grand in the Trump Hotel uh, with lodging and parking and all that. Right. So um, and it's like, why would Donald Trump change his tone, which he's done a lot. He's pretty much done on everything. There's literally a tweet for everything that Donald Trump says. Uh, you know, that he criticizes something or some policy or someone where there's an exact opposite tweet three, four, five years later or pre prior to where he said the exact opposite. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of this. I don't know what we're doing. And so speaking about NATO, um, you know, you, you talked about Angela Merkel, um, where she said, you know, the time where we could essentially rely on the U.S. is over. That, that time is over and Europe needs to figure things out themselves. And a lot of Americans love to hear that. They're tired of uh, the world. This is kind of how they view it. They're tired of the world sucking off of America's tit, and it's time for them to either pay up and, and do equal or we're gone. And so that's, that's the kind of sentiment. And that sentiment has always been in America. It was there um, during the years of uh, Woodrow Wilson and World War I and World War II, where we didn't let in hundreds of thousands of, uh, of, of Jews uh, during the period where they were uh, being murdered in the Holocaust. So we, you know, we have the tendency as Americans to hold higher moral high ground on other countries, you know, and talk about certain things. And we have our own history of <laughs> of horrible. <laughs> so all of this is 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 a sentiment, like I said, that's been that's been around in this country for a very long time, and it was re very prevalent so, during those times where we wouldn't let in immigrants, and we're not doing that now. And we saw what happened when we didn't let the Jews in. You know what I mean? So now we're looking at it with the Syrians. Now we're sending and, and people back immigrants. to their deaths, their most vulnerable citizens. You know, and we would always say, you know, if I was if I was around back in that time, yeah. I would do this or I would do that. And we're doing the same exact that we've done when we've seen where history has almost literally repeated itself. And we're still taking these same horrible actions. It's the same thing when we try to invade other countries. Like we're talking about invading Iran now. Like they set up this new CIA operation uh, to try to attack in Tehran. Saudi Arabia... The day before the uh, terror attacks, ISIS attacks in Iran, someone in Saudi Arabian government said that uh, we need to take the fight to Iran in Tehran. It's sick.
and then ISIS took responsibility for it. What, what do you make yeah. of that note from the Trump administration, their comments on it, where they – I've never seen anything like this, where effectively said, yeah, ISIS attacked you, but guess what? You deserved it. Right. I mean, have you ever seen anything like that? And what does that tell you about uh, U.S. decay, I guess, in, in the era of Trump? There was a period, unfortunately, where we were in Nicaragua supporting terrorists, um, you know, but we're talking about the shining city on the hill. There's a lot of hypocrisy that, that goes on with these things. But, um, you know, it, again, it's and I take it back to, you know, we're talking about climate change and the Paris Agreement um, and you're talking about nuclear weapons. The two things that are facing us today that are an existential threat to the human race um, is not being taken seriously. And people automatically assume that we're going to be here for another 100, 200 years. I'd like to be a, an optimist, but, you know, I just don't see any real true action towards that. And isolationism is like never, that goes back to the art of war, right? Sun Tzu, like isolationism is never a good thing. Um, and, and we can't afford to do that uh, for a number of reasons. But it's it's dangerous, man. I think it's dangerous that we're not paying attention to these to these major yeah. two threats. Let me ask you this. Um, it's remarkable. I mean, I can't believe it's only been five months with this guy in office. I mean, the <laughs> amount of crisis and conflict that we've seen, yeah. and you know, the amount of legitimate criminal activity which we haven't even discussed from from emoluments to uh, my goodness for all all the stuff with, with the Russia collusion, but right. Given everything we've seen in the last five months, what would be your worst fear about what would happen if there actually was a terror attack on the soil of the United States? The sad part about it is that there is no uh, liberty or security. You can have both. And the illusion of having security, um, then you, you're not able to actually fully have liberty. And so to me, if there's ever um, a major terrorist attack, which the likelihood or not even a major terror, just some type of attack, sure. the likelihood is that it will happen. I'm not saying we have to live with that. No one wants to live with that. And you take measures, uh, appropriate, legal, human, humane measures to stop terrorism as best you can. But um, once you get people into a, a state of fear and the reaction, reactionism of certain um, entities and and people in power. Theresa May talked about shutting, basically shutting down the internet or spying on the whole internet, and, and everyone's going to be fine with, or not everyone, but a lot of people will be fine with that because they want these terrorist terrorist attacks to happen. And we've seen how how these powers have been abused and exploited uh, over time over many countries, not just in Britain, in in America, and other countries where. There's a there's a there's an attack or there's some type of uh, some type of situation that happens, and instead of having courage and saying we're going to fight this thing, we're going to defeat this thing, they say, um, you know, we weren't going to crack down on this and crack down on that. They're not just talking about the people they're fighting. They're talking about any any thought. This is like pre-crime stuff, mm-hmm. where they where they want to be able to stop this before it even gets to the cradle. They want to mm-hmm. stop this at the moment of conception. They, they, and, and which is you you do, but how do you do that without evading someone's privacy? You don't. And so that's when you get to that point, man, it's it's over. It's a closed society and you will never get it back because the, the state of fear will always be perpetuated. And we're unfortunately, we, if, if that, if, if an unfortunate situation like a terrorist attack 
were to happen in America, we would be in that position because we've seen how Donald Trump has reacted when terrorist attacks in other countries have happened. He showed no love for the Iranian people. Um, he tweeted a bunch of other things, but he talked about, to me. you know what I mean? And, and not just there, he talked about the London mayor in the, in, on the day or the day after of the attacks happening. Yeah, attacking He's the criticizing mayor. the London mayor, not showing love for the people. So that's a, that's a problem when you know that's what Donald Trump is, and you and you can accept it or not. I have no power to impeach this dude, so yeah. Um, I you know I'm, I have to live with that until there's measures where he's not in office anymore from an impeachment or whatever they you know whatever legal stuff happens. The moral rot of this guy is unbelievable, and as people who listen to this show know, we keep talking about terror attacks. We're obviously implying um, terror attacks by people who are associated with ISIS or whatnot, and right. we're not talking about the terror attacks that have been going on by people in the Klan, neo-Nazis, right. yep. that Donald Trump has no time to say anything about. I mean, this right. Lieutenant Richard Collins, a yes. member of the armed yes. forces, killed on Memorial Day right. weekend. Right. And he doesn't right. say anything because right. I guess it's his base that killed him. Right. That's the only thing. I mean, right. I don't know what else you can assume, that he is his, he's happy to have the support of our homegrown terrorist class in this country. He doesn't care who supports him. He just wants that support. Oh, he's, um, I mean, he's, you know, he's, he, it is. Um, again, you know, when he, when you heard him throughout the campaign, will, will you disavow, you know, David Duke's endorsement or will you disavow this or that? He doesn't want to disavow because he doesn't, he, he doesn't want to lose any supporters. He's, so you he's, think he's, that's he's it? You don't think person. it's just, I mean, you can, we can drill it down and say, you know, this guy's a racist. And therefore, that's it. Right. Yeah, you know, we can we can be reductionist and just right. be like reduce it to this little fact that this guy right. is a white supremacist or he's got white supremacist advisors at the very least. Right. And this is the narrative they want to create. I mean, the the total rejection of the 2012 GOP autopsy about being more inclusive and doubling down on white voters and suppressing black and brown voters and right. It worked, and that's why I think he colluded with Russia, too, because it's like his philosophy is so clearly, you know, like the old sports slogan from, I think, Leo DeRocher, you know, just win, baby, and anything else is, is irrelevant. He's praised uh, dictators in the past, even even as a current president. He When he was talking to the uh, Philippines um, president, uh, Duterte, I think, is, I think is how you pronounce his name, uh, he told him, he congratulated him, on the job he's been doing cracking down on drugs. Well, obviously this dude's killed many people, um, lots of violence, lots of illegal raids, and uh, oh, that's just wild, done man. a lot of horrible things. And he called him on the phone to congratulate him. So he's, he's praised Kim, Jong, Kim Jong-un, he's praised Putin, uh, guys that, are, that, are, that are, have horrible um, records of, of their human rights abuses. Um, he's praised these people because he loves that tough guy mentality that, and what would, would seem to be uh, tough guy when you're like cracking down on protesters when you're well when you kick down at the power for the powerless I mean I yeah feel like yeah he's never he had loves a bully that. quite like this in office and he's outspoken about it and his his base loves him for that um which you know you know what you're getting with well I guess you don't because he'll flip flop any moment but I know we know what we're getting until we don't know what we're getting we'll be back and we're gonna talk some football with Dante Stallworth right after this quick word from the nation. 
the second best podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener, politics without the boring parts. Check out who they've got this week. I'm so impressed. I'm envious even. They got Norman Lear, the guy who created All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Good Times. He reflects on why all of those shows succeeded in the age of Nixon and what is different about political satire in the age of Trump. Also, Amy Goldstein of the Washington Post is on to discuss what happened when Paul Ryan's hometown lost its GM plant. Her new book is called Janesville. Definitely check out the new episode of Start Making Sense with John Wiener. It gets posted every Thursday at thenation.com. It is politics without the boring parts. And now back to our show. You played with a lot of interesting teams in this Uh-oh. league. I'm just going to run this. All Uh-oh. right, real quick. All right, best quarterback you have ever seen on the field. Man. Face up, eye test. Not Forget stats, forget reputation. F- straight up eye test, and you're like, damn, that guy can ball. Best quarterback. Tom Brady, without a doubt. Without Tom a doubt. Brady. Yeah, so that's interesting to me because I don't think of his physicality being overwhelming. Right. When you said that, I'm thinking, like, I was thinking Michael Vick, too, because but they're two different players, obviously. Like, when Michael Vick... I saw what he would do to defenses, and it was it was incredible in his prime. It was incredible the things that that he would be able to do, and fascinating to watch. Obviously, um, he could break your defense down. Like you have to contain. You can't rush this guy really, mm-hmm. um, because he'll run away from you and run around and make plays. Some the fourteen or later, somebody's going to get open. Ridiculous. I've never seen somebody move like that before. Um, but I also had to throw in Adrian Peterson. He was probably one of the only uh, persons on offense in my whole career that I saw. Every time they touched the ball, you thought they were going to score. Just wow. his movements. And yeah. then just that wow factor. So, yeah. So yeah. how does – given Brady's, you know, let's be frank, like, you know, pretty much above average physicality, what was it about Brady that wowed you? I would say average phys- physicality. Average physicality. What was it about him then that wowed you? Because that's the first name you said. I spoke to Michael Bennett on the Seahawks. He said Brady was the best quarterback he's ever no seen. No doubt, dude. What is it about Brady then? What What is it that makes him – That's I, I don't want to say scares, but what is it about him that's sort of jaw-dropping then? I think all of what you what you just said as far as him not being some – you know, some Adonis back there in the backfield, uh, you know, sitting back there, very staunch and stout and uh, firm. And it's like, it's like the, it's like the defense isn't, isn't even rushing. So this guy, he, he overcame his, uh, his, his physical inabilities or limited physical abilities to use all of the mental part with, of, of being a quarterback. And so, and I say that because they, they, all the coaches and players, they all say, you know, football is 90% mental and 10% physical. And, you know, I don't know if I agree with that because it's definitely physical, but uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's pretty high. It's, it may be 80-20. That's, you know, maybe. But the, the, point, the point in saying that is Brady doesn't have any, um, any physical ac- attributes that you look at and you're like, wow, this guy is like, no, he doesn't. Because he can overwhelm the game mentally, it actually serves to intimidate. And it does because so for instance, he's sitting back there, he's very calm. Um, he doesn't allow he doesn't get flustered by the rush. He doesn't um he, he it's basically like they're not even out there, right? Mm-hmm. And he does even, give even that impression gets, when they're on a run, like he's playing drills. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he and he has that composure. Most quarterbacks don't. And and I, I think the one of the other reasons is because his physical inability to be able to make things happen out of the pocket. He's he's like, listen, well, I'm not gonna run around, so I'm just gonna sit here and make that damn throw. 
And so he's he's mastered, literally mastered that. But not only that, it's like there's nothing you can do to him that he hasn't already seen. Like, the guys are going to get open. He's going to find them. Um, and his physical ability, he's still throwing as well as he was when, when I was back playing with him 10 years ago. He's still throwing well. And that's crazy, man. That dude's about to be 40 years old. And uh, I haven't seen any signs of him slowing down. So Brady, I would say by far, um, because he is just, um, you know, he's I grew up a Joe Montana fan. Yeah, I grew up, loved 49ers. Grew up Sacramento, California, big Joe Montana fan. Mm-hmm. But um, Brady is just on another level, man. And, he's just on another level. And the Montana similarities, slight of build. I mean, right. Montana, of course, more mobile, but just like the right. way that mentally right. they do their thing and always right. can bring it back is amazing right. to me. Let me throw this one at you. Uh, cornerback. What cornerback was the one who you knew you had to get up for big time or maybe even made you think before game even started, damn, this is going to be a long day? Definitely, whenever you played against Seawood uh, or, or Champ Bailey, you knew you had to bring your game. Um, and especially me, because those guys were like the bigger corners mm-hmm. that were, could also run, too. Like, for me, it was like... Size. Yeah, yeah. And so for me, it was like I could either run by guys or I could, over, I could be, you know, out-physical them. Um, and which, for the most of the case, was with corners. Corners didn't like to be physical, but those bigger guys, that was their game. And so um, when you get a guy like Seawood or Champ Bailey who can not only run with you, but can beat you up at the line of scrimmage, uh, that's dangerous because most of the guys that beat you up at the line of scrimmage, they do that because they can't run with you. All right, another question for you. I got two more of these geeked out football questions, and I'm asking you this. Keep in mind, I'm in Maryland as I'm asking you this, and this is a question that we absolutely suffer over in the great state of Maryland. Is Joe Flacco elite? Oh, ooh, good question. Um, (laughs) Hmm. I would say he's borderline elite. I wouldn't throw him in the category with Brady, um, uh, with Rodgers and Roethlisberger. Those guys are on another level. They're um, separated. Yeah. I, I, w- I would throw Flacco in that next group, though, at the top of the list. Um, Flacco, is, uh, he's, got this, he's got a sick arm. Um, he's a smart kid, big, big strong kid, can run, um, can make every single throw on the field, and has a cannon for an arm. Um, sometimes I think he gets, uh, he, he's been a little inconsistent throughout his course of his career. Um, now obviously that changes when you're when your offensive line changes, you know, uh, you know, so your, your, your whole career is pretty much predicated on what your offensive line is able to do or not able to do. So, um, they've had a little inconsistency there in the offensive line, which could be a sign for that as well. So, mm. uh, we'll see what happens this year though. I, I, uh, I enjoy watching those guys. I get up to a game at least once a year. Um, so I'll be, I'll be watching them again this year and hopefully oh, they'll man. do some good things. We, we got to go together, man. That would be fun as hell. Yeah, let's do it. I love that idea. Let's do it. One last question for you. And, sure. I, and thank you. So you've been like insanely generous with your time, and I do appreciate that. Anytime, brother. You know that. Greatly, though. But this is the, the last question, and it's probably the toughest one to ask, but I got to ask it because, you know, anybody who hears you talk is going to be like, wow, this guy is, you know, a brainiac to the 10th level. I mean, your, your flow, your knowledge, the base of your knowledge. I don't get all those nice things on Twitter, Dave. No, it's, well, 140 <laughs> characters, man. I mean, it's like, I, I mean, people also listening to this will know you don't speak in 140 characters either. Um, but does it lurk in your mind the idea of CTE and the idea that there might be something in your brain that could go off? Is it something that you spend a lot of time thinking about? Do you think about issues like diet and how that might affect it going forward? How do you think in your head and what's your internal monologue about your post career and, um, and your, and your brain? 
Uh, that's a that we could do a whole podcast on this. Yes, I, I'm. I am always thinking about that. And and again, I've always looked at myself as uh, more than a football player. Even before I played football, I I wanted to be an astronaut. And I always tell the story when people ask me, you know, when I first started playing football. I didn't start playing football until I was 11 years old. Um, I wanted to be an astronaut before that. And my parents bought me a telescope before they bought me a football. So I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a, uh, an architecture. I wanted to be a scientist. I, I loved learning about the earth and, and, and learning about uh, tectonic shifts. And I'm from California. We have a lot of earthquakes. So I've always wanted to be more than just a football player. So for me personally, um, I, I never, I don't want to say, I never lived for football. Maybe, maybe when I was in college. So I've always thought I need my brain because I want to I want to be, you know, I want to go and live in when I'm 70, 60. I want to go live in San Diego and La Jolla, um, hopefully live on a beach house and just kick back and, and on the ocean and, and just write a bunch of memoirs and uh, and books and novels like that's that's you know, what I mean, so you need your brain for that. Right. So I would say when. I was never concerned about it my early years because it ne I never thought about it. There was no knowledge. There was no awareness. There was no research that I was privy to or that I was aware of, um, which was the consistent uh, mindset of most of my teammates and colleagues. So when all this information started coming out, and um, and I remember we would go and do um, we would go to the Pentagon. We NFL representatives would go to the Pentagon and meet up with people at the DoD and share information. It'd be cool as they like show us classified things. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, minor, obviously minor classification, mm -hmm. but classified things about uh, their their research in, in concussions and dealing with repair time and how to deal with them, preventative measures, all these things that the DOD is doing, right? Um, and, and I don't want to say in concert with the NFL, but sharing information is, is, is always a good thing. And so, um, you know, realizing that they go through it, obviously, and, and uh, we go through it on, on a different level, much, much different level, but the brain is still the same, right? So... Um, I started thinking about all that, man. And, and uh, my last couple of years, when I came back after I, I when I went on IR in 2012 um, and I came back in 2013, I was in a hot air balloon accident and still wanted to play. So I said, you know, I, I asked the doctor, when can I start training? And he said, I couldn't start training for a few weeks. So I said, fuck, I, I still want to play. So I'm going to go back and play. And not to blame the hot air balloon accident, but I mean, is, being electrocuted is a you know difficult thing, but um and, you know, and we got, we were on fire, but that, anyway, my, my point in saying all that is, um, my muscles weren't in the best shape, you know, for training camp, but training camp is the most rigorous time throughout the course of the year. And so I ended up pulling the hamstring, like after the first four or five days, which I hadn't done since 2006. I mean, and I'd had a fire. string of, of injuries. <laughs> yeah. So after that, I got, you know, they cut me at the end of the year. Right. And I got back and I was at home in Miami and, um, you know, I'm watching the newsroom and, and like looking at all these people in the newsroom and listening to them talk about the news. And I'm like, damn, that sounds fun. And, and I was like more, I was thinking about more about that and more about political issues than I was about football. And, and I didn't even want to train. And that's when I realized that once I stopped wanting to, because I always loved to train, like I've always loved to run and, and lift weights and do the agility drills. And once I, once that left my mind, then that's when the first notion I realized I said, I said to myself, I said, you know what, man, I said, I, there may be a trend here. And I said, I, you know what, Dave, I was blessed to play 10 years, blessed to, um, you know, do a lot of things I've never been able to do, uh, take care of some family members and friends. And I said, you know what, it'd be my luck, man. I've never torn an ACL, never had any major, major injuries, um, never even had any official concussions before I say official. Um, and so I'm like, it'll be my luck. I go back out there and, you know, try to play. And I, I end up tearing my ACL and getting a concussion on. And I said, you know what? 
I could maybe try the rest of this year, maybe next year. But I said, you know what? It's not worth it for me. I was, you know, again, already 10 years in, I wasn't satisfied with my, with my personal career. I knew I could have done a lot better than I did. And that's obviously my fault. But um, at the end of the day, I was blessed. I, I was living my dream, done living that dream, wanted to move on to the next one. So, you know, I don't have kids or anything like that, but I, I think about all that stuff, man. And that all, like, it was easy for me to, again, the position I was in, everyone's different, but um, start thinking about all that, man. So uh, everything that I want to do at the end of my life and, and, you know, I got hopefully God, God willing, I got, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years left. Well, maybe not 60. I am, I am old. So, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, as long as I'm blessed to be here, hopefully it's a few more decades. And I want to be able to, you know, have fun, live out the rest of my dreams uh, and, you know, be 75 years old sitting in that on that Ocean View property, man, in San Diego and, and uh, writing some novels. And that'd be it. <laughs> I'd be <Wow>. good. <laughs> that sounds pretty damn good. So I'm concerned about my brain, Dave. It's, I'm sorry. The whole that whole story was to tell you that I am concerned about my brain. Well, last wow. <laughs> last question for you. Everybody's got their music that they get up for. Maybe it's to get up to work out. Maybe it's to get up to write and face the day. What's your music, <laughs> Dave? I have music for everything. I literally have, uh, I, and 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 all of my playlists are named after cities that um, are like international cities. And like for instance, I have a I have a Pyongyang playlist. Um, I have a Tehran playlist. I have a Moscow playlist. Um, but I also have, uh, you know, I have uh, a Paris playlist. Uh, but um, for instance, when I wake up in the morning, I, I like to listen to like more slower, like classical music or um, something slow. It's like when I was younger, I used to get up and listen to rap music. It was rap, Tupac, Young Jeezy, T.I. And I still listen to all that. But um, I love those guys. And but in the mornings and at night, you know, when I'm when I'm trying to like either e transition my way either out of the bed or into the bed. It's usually classical music, and um, but in between, it's you know everything from from uh, from pop music to rock music, old rock, eighties rock. Um, uh, we didn't start the fire is one of my favorite songs. Politically and what? just in general, dude. I know where I know that's I know I could do a I could do a concert with that song. As, much, as difficult as it is, he said that's the most difficult song he ever done. But so I listen to everything, Dave. But that's one of my favorite songs. Man, and R.I.P. Your mentions, good. if you ever put that out publicly. I'm I'm gonna do it right now. I'm gonna do it right now. As soon as we got this phone, I'm gonna tweet it right now. Uh, <laughs> China's under martial law. We <laughs> God. It's a great song, man. JFK blown away. China's under martial law. I, <laughs> yes. I get it. Messed up sometimes. Yeah, yeah. All right, yo, Dante Stallworth, man. Thank you so much for your time. Thank time, you so dude. much for your thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for having me, brother. Appreciate you. All right, be well. You too. And now, as promised, I've got some choice words about LeBron James and the racial epithet scrawled on the front of his house. So, LeBron James, arguably the most famous athlete in these United States, just saw the N-word scrawled across the gate of his Los Angeles home. Soon after this news broke, word came of a noose found at the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and incidentally, LeBron James has contributed financial support to this museum of upwards of $2.5 million. 
These acts came less than two weeks after the racist killing of Lieutenant Richard Collins III on the UMD campus and the murders of two white Good Samaritans in Portland who were attempting to intervene as a neo-Nazi was harassing two young women of color, one wearing a hijab, and it comes in the wake of these torch-wielding rallies against the removal of Confederate monuments. It's all part of an ongoing state of terror, division, and violence that has emerged under the Trump administration. As the United States goes about puking up the worst aspects of its barbarism, it's tragically fitting that an athlete like LeBron James would be targeted. From the dawn of organized sports, black athletes have driven racists into fits of fury. They represent excellence in a field that has long been promoted as the ultimate meritocracy. Now, while many of us watch a player like LeBron James with awe and even gratitude, and some of us watch him with anger, of course, if he's dunking on your team, racists merely seethe with resentment. The living embodiment of their own inferiorities, black athletes puncture the imaginations of white supremacists, and they always have. In 1908, the first black heavyweight champion, boxer Jack Johnson, heard the call for a great white hope to restore the natural order of racial hierarchy. Then there was Bill Russell, the Celtic great, who won 11 championships in 13 years for the Boston faithful, but that didn't stop someone from breaking into his home and defecating on his floor. When boxer Floyd Patterson attempted to move into a white neighborhood, he was rebuffed. Hall of Fame basketball player Lenny Wilkins' dog was poisoned by his neighbors. They wanted his family out of their white community. Jim Brown, cheered by tens of thousands in the city of Cleveland, couldn't even rent a home in the neighborhood of his choice. And today, as we've talked about on this podcast at length, Baltimore Orioles player Adam Jones has to hear racial invective from the Red Sox fans in Fenway Park. And to add insult to injury, he was then harangued by internet trolls and established sports writers alike that he was somehow making it up. Yet while the black athlete is a target for the maelstrom of hate being regurgitated by this White House and its shock troops, they are also critical to its resistance if they are willing to step up and speak about what is happening. And LeBron James did precisely that at a recent press conference. It just goes to show that um, that racism uh, will always be a, a part of the world, a part of America. And, um, you know, hate, you know, in America, especially for African-American, is, uh, is living every day. And even though that, you know, that it's concealed most of the time, even though people hide their faces and will say things um, about you, and when they see you, they smile on your face, um, it's alive every single day. And, um, and I think back to Emmett Till's mom, actually. It's kind of one of the first things I thought of. And, and the reason that she had an open casket is because she wanted to show the world um, what her son went through as far as a hate crime and, you know, being black in America. So it's like it doesn't, no matter how much money you have, um, no matter how famous you are, no matter how many people admire you, um, you know, being, being black in America is, is tough. And, uh, and we got a long way to go, um, you know, for, for us as a society and for us as African Americans until we, until we feel equal um, in America. It's difficult to hear LeBron's words and not think about what Colin Kaepernick said last fall when he said, 
There's a lot of racism disguised as patriotism in this country. Maybe that's why he can't get a contract from the NFL executives who are underwriting the Trump agenda. Kaepernick spoke a difficult truth to power, and we're going to need more of that if we are going to keep this hated bay. Lives depend on it. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Look, The Nation Magazine is becoming an utterly indispensable voice in Trump's America. Check out what they have going on on the issue dated June 14th. We got Naomi Klein on why resisting Trump is not enough, which connects with her new book, uh, which is absolutely unbelievable. We've got a story about juvenile life without parole. Absolutely the sort of stories that you do not get anywhere else. And we've got the great John Nichols talking about the down-ballot progressives who are changing politics in this country. In addition, in the books and arts section, we have a review of Wonder Woman by Stuart Clowens and Sophie Pinkham on several new books detailing the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. It is a remarkable issue on June 14th. Cannot recommend it enough. The best way to read every article I just described is to subscribe. Just go to thenation.com slash subscribe and you get to read all the articles. And I guarantee you, it is not only money well spent, but it supports a legitimate resistance. And now, back to Edge of Sports. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up, Just Sit Down Award. This week, I'm sorry to be repetitive, but please bear with me. It's very Kaepernick-focused. And yet this week, what it's about is about this incredible division that I see taking place among NFL writers, some of whom, in an effort to carry water for the National Football League, they might as well have an NFL tramp stamp on the small of their back, are insisting, against all evidence to the contrary, that Colin Kaepernick is not in the NFL because he's just not good enough. And on the flip side, you have a lot of longtime NFL writers who are looking at a situation where people like Austin Davis... Chase Daniel and Chad Henney have jobs, they're looking at their colleagues and saying, have you completely lost your mind? Well, they haven't lost their mind. They're just carrying water for the National Football League. They are access merchants. But it's fascinating to me to see these journalists start to call each other out by name as they're looking at what's happening. And on the side of people who are looking at this situation and saying, has the world gone mad, is Mike Freeman from Bleacher Report. Check out the statistic Mike Freeman found about Colin Kaepernick. It is the most damning statistic that shows how insanely absurd it is that he doesn't have a job. And it also shows exactly how we can understand that this is nothing more than a political ostracization. This is what Mike Freeman tweeted. 144 quarterbacks in NFL history have thrown 200 or more passes in the year that they turned 29. 143 were on NFL rosters when they turned 30. Colin Kaepernick is the only one not to be on a roster as he approaches his 30th birthday after having thrown 200 passes the previous season. Just think about that for a second. 144 quarterbacks have thrown 200 or more passes in NFL history the year they turned 29. 143 were on rosters the next year, except for Colin Kaepernick. That's the sort of things that Mike Freeman is unearthing. Uh, Similar statistics and arguments have been put forward by 
uh, Doug Farrar, who is a guest on the show. People can go to edgesportspodcast.com to listen to that interview. It was terrific. Uh, Jason Reed of ESPN's The Undefeated, he wrote a terrific column about all this. Mike Tannier, another person who was a guest on this show. Melissa Jacobs, who was a guest on this show. On the flip side, you have what seems to be the whole crew of Sports Illustrated's Monday Morning Quarterback. They're the folks who need to sit down. One of the people is this guy, Andy Benoit, who put forward this embarrassing and much ridiculed Twitter storm where he named all the quarterbacks who are better than Colin Kaepernick, including just some gobsmacking, horrific quarterbacks, and then tried to justify it in ways that you're just reading this and you're thinking, what is this guy's agenda? And by the way, if the name Andy Benoit sounds familiar, he's the guy who got dragged on Saturday Night Live by Amy Poehler because he said that women's sports were simply not worth watching. And then you have another guy at Monday Morning Quarterback, uh, Albert Breer, who has beat this gong consistently that Kaepernick isn't good enough. And if the name Albert Breer sounds familiar, he was the most mainstream sports writer who openly doubted whether or not Adam Jones of the Orioles had been called the N-word at Albert Breer's beloved Fenway Park. So you're talking about two people who clearly are coming at this politically. Clearly where they stand is at a very reactionary place. And yet at the same time, they're using their football acumen and reputation to justify Colin Kaepernick's political pariah status. It's ugly as hell. They're entitled to their own opinion, of course, but they're not entitled to their own facts. So thank you. Just stand up to the sports writers who are actually trying to look at this objectively. Just sit down the people who are actually using Colin Kaepernick as a shibboleth to beat down anybody who thinks that athletes should be able to do more than shut up and play. So here is the latest rationalization for why Colin Kaepernick is not employed by the National Football League. And remember, before I tell you this, please keep in your mind that we have heard every conceivable rationalization. He cares too much about activism. He wants to be a starter. He's demanding too much money. Uh, He's a vegetarian. It's actually one thing you hear, as if to play in the NFL means you have to floss your teeth with steak grizzle and drink a shake made directly from a bull's balls. But here's the latest excuse, which is so wild, I can't even get my head around it. Seahawk coach Pete Carroll said the reason why Colin Kaepernick was not signed as a backup to Russell Wilson is that he's too good. He's too good to be a backup on the Seahawks. Not about money, not about his inability to throw from the pocket, not about his politics. He's too good. Carroll's exact words were, Kaepernick is a starter in this league, but we have a starter. If you know anything about the injury rate in the National Football League and the way quarterbacks can sometimes go down, you know, like literally a puppet that's had its strings cut, then you know how ridiculous Carroll's reasoning is. Think about the Oakland Raiders last year. They were the sweetheart team of the AFC, a team a lot of people said had the best chance to dethrone the Patriots on the way to the Super Bowl. They were dynamic at every skill position except quarterback when their pro bowler Derek Carr went down. And who did they have to replace Derek Carr? Connor Cook. Once Connor Cook was their quarterback, any semblance of hope for the Raiders in the playoffs went absolutely out the window, and they lost to the Houston Texans, a terrible, terrible team. So, what does that tell you? It tells you having a good backup quarterback is really important, and having two starting caliber quarterbacks 
is stunningly important. And yet here's Colin Kaepernick without a job in the NFL because he's too good. My Lord, tragedy has truly become farce. And now before we wrap up the show, I would like to read a letter that I was sent by an Edge of Sports listener uh, that I think is really just worth sharing. I want to share this letter, um, and it's about my use, my constant use of the word blackball to talk about the situation involving Colin Kaepernick. It's another view of it, and I just thought it was worth sharing. Good evening, Mr. Zyron. I hope all is well. By the way, quick editorial note, please never call me Mr. Zyron. Please call me Dave. Okay, going on. I'm writing to ask that you consider using the term ostracize or lockout instead of the term blackball when referring to Colin Kaepernick or any other athlete in a similar situation. Although this term may have its origin in the actual color of an object used as a parliamentary tool to determine whether a particular position gets support or not, the fact that the bad outcome is associated with the so-called black ball highlights the negative connotation associated with that term. That the system was presumably engendered by a group of men who were Caucasian in the context of so-called gentlemen's clubs should be more than enough of a reason to suspend the use of this term given the aforementioned nefarious connotation. The use of color as an adjective is pervasive throughout the media. As a man who is African American, I am particularly sensitized to such micro-insults and microaggressions perpetuated by a society who thinks white lives are okay but that black sheep are to be looked down upon. As a listener who has enjoyed learning more about the political side of some of the sports I've been conflicted about patronizing, I sincerely enjoy the quote-unquote woke content. I'm only asking that you all take it a step farther and choose your words with the same amount of thought that you put into your stories and columns. Keep pushing, David E. Miles. Well, thank you, David Miles, for the letter, and we will definitely think about that because I do agree with you that words have power, You're absolutely correct that the history is not rooted in race. But as time has gone on, the word blackball has attained the kind of connotation for all the things that you describe. White hat, black hat, white lies, black sheep, and all the rest of it. Positive and negative coloring. Uh, It assumes a different kind of thought process in the 21st century. I hear where you're coming from. You make a terrific point, and thank you so much for listening to the show. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much to my co-producers, Daniel Baker and David Tigabu. Welcome back, Daniel Baker. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Edge of Sports Pod. Follow the podcast Twitter feed. It's terrific. And you can always listen to back episodes at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Please be sure to listen to our lost interview with Frank DeFord, which we posted last week. It's getting huge traction. It's a terrific tribute to a terrific guy. Thank you so much to our listeners. Thank you so much to the Huckabee family. Terrific listening family to the podcast. Love y'all. Love Sugar Ray Boxing in Prince George's County. Thank you to David Miles for his letter about blackballing. Thank you, of course, to Dante Stallworth. Stay frosty out there, people. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. 
We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.